It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down Hello and welcome folks to another edition of American Loser. This episode is being recorded super early in the morning, so we're going to use a fake NPR voice. My name is KP Burke and I used to be a stand-up comic in uh, New Jersey before that shit just went away in total. And if you already don't know about the show, it's a show where we cover uh, the weirdest stories and biggest losers from American history. And I'm very excited. Uh, just so you guys know, behind the scenes stuff, of course, where else could we be other than a shared universe podcast studio in Eatontown, New Jersey? Mike and Ming taking great care of us as always. Ming, thank you for coming in early today, sir. I really appreciate it. Always. That's, always. I think Kahuna just went to bed, so yeah, that's why I'm here. Kahuna was jamming out on his music last night, so we could tell he was just probably going to no call, no show. Um, but uh, I'm excited, man. Uh, and you guys uh, you guys know the deal on the show already. If you don't, uh, typically it's me and my dad telling weird stories here. But uh, Lawrence Patrick, not with us today. He's actually having surgery. It's a, a, a typical penis reduction surgery. Really, it wasn't anything that he wanted to have done, but it kept getting stuck in a bandsaw. So we figured at this point, let's just be ahead of the curve here and, you know, have something handled for him. But he's actually getting, uh, I think, a couple of teeth removed today or something. So that's why we had to move a couple of things around. But guys, we wanted to give you a quality episode on a quality topic. Who else are we going to bring in than uh, pretty much, I think, the favorite guest of the show? Okay. Now, my female cousins have been very popular guests, but that's because I got a lot of creepy listeners. They're trying to find out if they're single or not. None of them are. Okay, guys. Um, but uh, this next cute little boy is single. All right. Guys, returning to the show, uh, my buddy, uh, Andy Lawson, a.k.a. Andy High Roller, a.k.a. Andy Hot Boy, a.k.a. Sexy Bin Laden. Um, <laughs> Welcome back that to the show. That last one got me. <laughs> I've never been here when your dad's here. It's weird. It's uh, it's almost like uh, this, the same way that I go to my father for advice is the I'm same way I call now. you. Yeah. I call you up for advice, man. Yep. And it's all good. My favorite moment on the show with you so far, though, has been when we discovered that you're actually more Hawaiian than the kahuna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we got a damn good one today. This was another – this was an episode that was kind of on my radar – and then you texted me one time and you're like, dude, we should do this topic for the episode. Yes. And as soon as you said it, I was like, all right, well, we know who I'm bringing in as the guest now. It's the hippie crusher. The hippie crusher. <laughs> this one, this story blew my mind because, uh, first of all, it would have been cool to have my dad in here because he was uh, alive during the time frame for it. So he can tell you what they were covering on the news, what the mood of the country was at the time. Uh, instead, we're just going to have to literally read the events as they happen and kind of just process this shit. Um, what what stood out to you? Uh, like, what are the, the cliff notes of this episode here? Well, I mean, we're, we're going to shoot for about an hour here, right? Absolutely. Arguably, one hour worth of events in December of uh, 1969 effectively ended the good vibes of the 60s. Yep. And it, it's how quick things can turn. <laughs> well, it's this fun thing where every time a 
new, hopeful, energetic, idealistic, youthful group of people come along and say, hey, let's reject the old systems of the past that aren't working and let's try to build something new, almost always ends in Jonestown. <laughs> okay, so it gets wild here, man. Um, I got... Uh, I'll tell you what, we're going to set this one up a certain way here. So, uh, Ming and Andy, I got, uh, you guys are two of my good friends. Uh, I got a great idea for you guys. I'm going to pitch an idea for you. Okay. I feel like we may have glossed over even saying the name at this point, right? Which, which name of Altamont? Uh, well, I mean, we're going to, we're going to say that too, but I got to pitch you my modern okay. idea. Uh, guys, I'm going to throw a music festival. I'm going to get all of the hottest mumblecore rappers, all the hottest DJs. Uh, we're going to get uh, tons of drugs and booze. I'm going to have it filmed, okay, because one of the uh, Mumblecore rappers wants to have a documentary made about him. And uh, we're going to capture this moment. We're going to explain to them that 2020 wasn't actually really a bad year. It was really a hopeful year. And uh, in order to ensure the safety of everyone involved, I've hired as security MS-13. <laughs> so, does this sound like a good idea? Oh, it sounds like a great idea. It, um, it, <laughs> what about uh, dumping a lot of uh, speed and acid on it? That to me, this is uh, this event we're going to cover goes somewhere between was a fire festival that yep. went crazy, right? So it's fire festival meets almost the Manson murders a little bit meets that scene from a Bronx Tale when um, Chaz Palminteri and the boys rough up uh, the bikers that start spilling beer in the bar. It gets pretty wild. A day that is known as the worst all-time day in rock and roll history happened, as you mentioned, uh, Doctor High Roller. Pretty much closely to the day. We're recording, I believe, a day after. But on December 6th, 1969, there's a little shindig out west known as the Altamont Free Concert. Originally concepted to be Woodstock West after the famous Free Love Spirited Concert of the earlier 60s. I didn't realize this. Did you know how, what the time frame was between, like how, how small the time frame was between Woodstock, which is considered a success, and Altamont, which is considered a disaster. It was very short, right? I think it's like four months. Yeah. So that's how long the the true peace, hippie, and love movement worked where these kids are like, we're going to change the world, man. Everything's... Because you look at footage of Woodstock, and I just imagine being a guy, you know, boots on the ground in Vietnam or something like that. And you're like, dude, I can't wait to get back and go to one of these peace rallies and get laid. Yeah. Like these chicks are, there's topless chicks everywhere. You know, it's free love. It's go smoke pot in a van or something like that. Maybe come out with like, you know, two chicks at once kind of a thing. It seems like a good time. Then you see the footage of Altamont and you're like, I'm safer here in the jungle. <laughs> so The Altamont thing, the precursor to that was they were doing a lot of, free music in the park shows at the time. Yes, sir. And um, so there was a little bit of a good track history with this, but then it quickly went downhill. Well, it's funny because uh, th when you're rebelling against the system, but you require the system in order to continue your rebelling, it's like a weird thing where, um, hey, man, we want to do free music in the park. And it's like, that sounds like an awesome idea, but you got to file permits for something this big. No way, man. We're not incorporating <laughs> the man. And then the man winds up being a big thing here. And that's another reason why they, they get rid of the cops uh, for Altima. And then we're going to get into a couple of the, the weird decisions here that they made. But uh, again, as recalled uh, by, uh, I believe it was Rolling Stone magazine, uh, wrote down that this was, uh, it was supposed to be Woodstock West and it ended as the worst all-time day in rock and roll history, a day when absolutely everything went wrong. So, I'm excited about this one, buddy. I don't think anything had a chance of really going – it's almost – things could have went way worse, really. 
we are lucky that this um, it's if you could imagine uh, Woodstock and Kent State happening at the same time, it, it's almost a little bit of That's that. A solid so it's <laughs> well, the idea started off as most of these. It a good idea with good intentions is always a good thing, but you got to have a little planning involved with it. Okay. And maybe, maybe do acid in your meeting to, you know, get creative and, you know, do your Wolf of Wall Street thing. Let's uh, do some quaaludes and try to come up with ideas for marketing campaigns. But then maybe do the planning part sober. I don't think anything about this was sober from the get-go. No, it really wasn't. Um. Uh, it was, uh, the idea was originally concepted. By uh, two members of Jefferson Airplane, you know, uh, Don't You Want Somebody to Love, classic song, right? Uh, almost ruined by Jim Carrey's The Cable Guy, who, by the way, in that movie makes a reference to Altamont. I think I remember that. Yeah, it's a scene where he he uh, goes kind of full villain at that point, because up until then, he's almost funny. Um, but uh, Jefferson Airplane, one of the most successful bands out of the Bay Area. The, you, know, you got also the, the hate Ashbury scene going on here. That's that same scene that seemed to create uh, acid rock, Andy, because uh, that's where the nice boys of the CIA were conducting experiments known as MK Ultra, first loserception of the day. Okay. So, uh, in a second, do you want to recap for those who maybe haven't heard MK Ultra episode that we did? I could do that, yeah. Yeah, hit me, brother. MK Ultra was essentially the one of the three-letter agencies. Which one is it? Uh, it's the CIA, for the sure. The CIA. Uh, they were experimenting with LSD and I think some other psychedelics compounds um, in order to do uh, mind control and possible like uh, pr brain programming for assassinations and whatnot. Yep, and it was uh, there was multiple ideas for this one. It was signed off without going into a full diatribe, it was signed off by uh, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, who was also the guy who uh, largely botched the Bay of Pigs, another loser inception here. His brother is the guy who got Dulles Airport in D.C. named after him. Um, his brother's one of the guys who overthrew the government of Guatemala, which is fantastic to learn about. Um, and Alan Dulles kind of signed off on this thing. And uh, it started off as an idea of, well, let's see what these compounds can do. Maybe we can use it to take down dictators. We put a tincture of LSD in one of Castro's uh, Cuban coffees in the morning, and maybe we can put him in such a mental state that he can no longer lead, and we can then install a more American-friendly leader here. And you know there was a whorehouse, too. That was the best part. Yeah. So they then, uh, in order to test this on people, what they do is they would bring them to flop houses, if you will, where uh, a hooker would bring, you know, a, an unsuspecting out of town businessman uh, into a hotel room that on the other side of the mirror would be these CIA guys just sitting there smoking cigarettes and they would supply uh, drinks, drugs, and everything else like that. Uh, and then what they would do is uh, test out what the guy would do on acid. So it's uh, an interesting thing, especially since all three of us here in this room have done acid before, right, Ming? <laughs> yeah, Ming's drinking his coffee right now. We're going to be testing out the effects of acid on him for the next 40 minutes. But uh, yeah, that's MK Ultra. A couple of the interesting people who were test subjects of that included uh, members of the Grateful Dead and the theory you sent me this earlier that mm -hmm. pretty much MK Ultra accidentally created the Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another participant in similar experiences uh, was Mr. Ted Kaczynski. 
Ah, yes, the Unabomber. Um, he's almost the hero of that story if you really look back at it because he was he was organized. <laughs> I mean, he's a professor at the very least. <laughs> uh, another guy is Ken Kesey, I believe, uh, who writes the book uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He comes into play here in a little bit. Um, but the point is this, whether it was on accident, so you just take a bunch of already people who are creative you know, musician types, then give them these uh, mind-expanding drugs that are going to allow them to create something brand new here. Acid rock is now a thing, and the San Francisco Bay Area has one of the killer music scenes, if not the best at the time, that all of a sudden San Fran is – New York was always the big thing. You always had a big pull over there. Chicago was a, a fun town to go play in because you got – I mean, they had the blues figured out pretty quickly. And then um, – now, all of a sudden, San Francisco is putting some shit together, man. They're pretty cool over here. But the problem is when acts are coming from overseas in England, New York seems to be hogging all the big stars that are coming over. So the Beatles are going to go play, you know, they want to be on the Ed Sullivan show. So they got to go to New York, all that other stuff. Uh, second only to the Beatles, though, you know, I'll give you one guess. What's the biggest band after the Beatles? The Rolling Stones. The goddamn Rolling Stones. They are the hottest band in the world at this time, pretty much. So Jefferson Airplane lays out some groundwork for this idea of a Woodstock West uh, at what they originally planned to take place in gorgeous Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. You're a well-traveled man, Andy High Roller. Have you ever yeah. made it out to San Fran? Yes, I have. Thoughts? When I was there... I don't know. I didn't like it that much. <laughs> I'd say it was kind of overrated as cities go. Like uh, my, my favorite city is always going to be Philadelphia. There is uh, some charm to the, the blue collar nature of Philadelphia. I'm a fan of it. Yeah. Um, I'll say this too, though, uh, with San Fran. And by the way, we one of my favorite episodes we ever did was on Emperor Norton, who's essentially a crazy homeless guy that San Francisco just adopted as their mascot. And the guy declared himself emperor of America. Pretty cool, dude. I remember being in San Francisco and just being from New Jersey. You talk loud and you curse. And I remember like being out at bars and having people like look at me like I was being obtuse or rude just for just for being me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I thought we were celebrating the individual out there. But no. 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 Not if he's loud. <laughs> Curses. A similar experience I had out in Seattle was um, uh, an interesting one where you would see uh, – um, I would get uh, – you'd be nervous about what language you would use and if something would be considered bigoted language um, when you would just be like, oh, look at this. Uh, you know, I would just be like, oh, it's what are you, some Italian guy or something like that? Mm. It's something innocuous when a guy's got a name with 18 vowels in it. And they'd be like, oh, wow, so that's how you look at people? And then there's a homeless guy shitting in the streets. Uh, and then the same way that homeless people will collect cans and glass bottles to return them uh, to a facility for five cents in return. Uh, you were noticing people uh, collecting uh, needles on the streets. So definitely a wild city over there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but San Fran at the time, gorgeous, right? Um, it, it's still a beautiful place. But um, at the time here, they got the, the counterculture headquarters, if you will, is going on over here. So you're seeing a lot of the chicks wearing some of the hippie clothes, which is such a weakness of mine. But uh, you also got a great music scene going on over here. And the idea is that if you could take Golden Gate Park, which is like just a stunning place, and have this free music concert here, you're going to showcase on a national level because the news is going to cover if the Rolling Stones are playing somewhere in town, especially the lineup that they put together. Um, everything sounded like it was going to be in order here for this concert to take place in Golden Gate Park. 
Um, and the park location is going to be huge. That's a huge draw to bring everybody in. The lineup uh, was starting to come together. Again, this is the original brainchild of uh, two members of Jefferson Airplane. And uh, their lineup is going to eventually include, and this is a pretty good goddamn concert. I'm going to say that. Um, Carlos Santana, one of the great guitar players of all time. Uh, Jefferson Airplane, of course, if it's your idea, you're going to put yourself into it, right? That's uh, Kevin Smith knows that, right? I, I won't give myself any dialogue, but uh, I'll put myself in all my movies. Um, the Flying Burrito Brothers, which is no a band. No clue who they are. I thought vegan hipster joint. Um, turns out actually outstanding bluesy country rock kind of a group. Oh, you you deep dove on this. I had to because okay. I'd never heard of them at all. Yeah. But the Flying Burrito. I kind of actually, maybe I thought it was like a Cheech and Chong too for a little bit in my brain. We're like the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Sherlock Holmes did a lot of coke. <laughs> Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, as in Neil Young, who, in my opinion, after Alanis Morissette, is the best female vocalist in Canada. Um, and then, obviously, the Rolling Stones are going to be the obvious major marquee name. That's who's going to get everybody to show up here. But how are you going to have a hippie jam fest in the Bay Area without Jerry Garcia and the boys of the Grateful Dead? I defy you, Andy, to tell me a reason not to have the dead play. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, they had, like I said earlier, they had done a couple of concerts like this in the park that were smaller, and it was known at that time that the Hells Angels were there, essentially in like a concierge type of role, and it had worked out. <laughs> That's such a great name for a concierge. Yeah. Um, you know, later when we get to Altamont, things don't work out so well. No, and, and this was the interesting part of it is that. Um, the event's going to be difficult to schedule. Jefferson Airplane went on tour in Florida thinking the original plan was still in place. So they go out and they go do their Florida dates or whatever. And then on their way, when they pretty much when they come back, they find out, oh, by the way, everything's gone to shit. We've changed the location and the venues and all this other stuff. Um, pretty much everything had changed. Lead vocalist Grace Slick, who, by the way, has one of the, the coolest voices around. And by the way, Grace Slick, that's a, that's a name right mm -hmm. there. That's a, if that's her actual born name. That's perfect. If if not, what a stage name. I mean, it's no Andy High Roller, but it's up there. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, Grace Slick mentions on the day of the concert that everything just had bad vibes, very peculiar, very abrasive day, kind of a hazy day. There's no sense of hope uh, like they were out on the farmlands of uh, Woodstock, which, by the way, uh, I don't think Woodstock took place in Woodstock. I think it took place at the town over. Yes. Right? Yeah. Remember um, The footage of the road into Altamont and the footage of the road into Woodstock, though, are like identical. Just cars parked on either side in the field and people walking up um, for miles back, you know. Jesus. Well, my mom always says this, too, is that back in the day, you used to be able to pitch up, uh, pick up a hitchhiker or something like that, or hitchhiking was a thing you could do. And then all of a sudden, the news started coming. Like, oh, by the way, you know, uh, a lot of these people wind up getting chopped up and put in the trunk. And that was the first time that you know they started to realize, like, oh, maybe this, maybe we're not all on board with the peace and love thing. Yeah, yeah. There might be people picking apart at this, like H. H. Holmes at the World's Fair in Chicago. Hey, why don't you come stay at my murder mansion? <laughs> so a few things that were precursors to this with the uh, Rolling Stones, they um, they were broke. They had recently been ripped off by one of their tour managers or their accountant or something like that. So, uh, this tour that 
ended at Altamont was kind of looked at as like a money grab on their part. They were facing a lot of scrutiny over ticket prices. Yeah. Even Rolling Stone, the magazine was going against them being like, these guys are fucking ripoffs. Yeah. And um, tickets were three all the way up to $7. <laughs> so, yeah. The um, Ming brought the poster up too here, which is great because it, it pretty much encapsulates. You read this and you're like, how could this possibly go wrong? The Rolling Stones present a free concert on December 6, 1969. Winds up being, as we're going to cover at the Altamont Raceway in uh, Livermore, California. And at the very bottom there, security by Hell's Angels. Right. This is a real thing. We're not exaggerating anything here yet. Um, one thing that did go right, like we said, they are able to get the Rolling Stones on board. But since the proposed concert's going to take place towards the end, like you said, Andy, of the, the tour, um, the band agreed to headline the free concert. And they're like, oh, cool. Golden Gate Park. Let's do this. I've been working on a Mick Jagger voice to try to figure it out for some of the weird shit. But, I'll do it now. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Get, get it ready because there's a couple of good quotes from him for this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, everything was set up to fail, and uh, the Rolling Stones were playing last. And uh, I mean, what, what do you think the first thing to go wrong was? Well, technically, the first thing that goes wrong, which is great here, uh, Golden Gate Park, the original location, falls through. Why? Because the Chicago Bears are playing the 49ers in Golden Gate Park at that time. Okay, so the football is going to interfere here and you don't want to put the football fans who at the time were the traditional blue collar workers. You don't want all those guys, you know, who are just sitting there like drunk on a Sunday to then be hanging out with, um, you know, all the hippies and stuff. because eventually there's going to be a fight. Yeah, that, that mingle might not work out so good. Well, it's like a Niners Raiders game. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a you don't want to get those two crews together here. Uh, in addition to that, too, is that part of the counterculture thing, when you say fuck the police all the time. The police aren't going to be as enthusiastic to work with you on stuff. So now local authorities aren't keen on the idea of a large congregation of hippies coming around because things are already getting a little bit tense sometimes between local authorities and politicians and, you know, them staging, uh, uh, you know, protests and everything like that. So when you agitate the bear and then be like, oh, by the way, bear, can we please get some permits to have a, a larger scale version of this? You know, the bear might be a little bit of an asshole about it. So things in Cali are wild, hate Ashbury, acid rock, counterculture, MK Ultra. Everything's going crazy here. There's a couple of negotiations for a few other venues that are going to fall through due to cash issues or, again, hesitations from local police and politicians. Uh, one of the cash issue thing was interesting, by the way, and it was because of the Rolling Stones, because the Beatles were the first of all, the Beatles were geniuses because they showed up as clean cut, nice boys from Liverpool and the girls were just creaming their panties over them, right? So you could sell that to people. It's almost like the Jonas Brothers are like, we can sell sex as long as, uh, you know, Disney is, uh, you know, attached to our name kind of a thing. Um, so they're smart that way, the Beatles. The Stones come over as the contrast to them. They're the bad boys. They're getting arrested for doing acid. Mick Jagger's like, sometimes the girls dress me up as a girl and then I fuck them. <laughs> Yeah, they have a little of that punk rock energy, that precursor to punk rock. You oh, know? yeah. They, they were vulgar. They were lewd. It was um, because of that, though, the other venues were like, all right, well, listen, you can have your event here, but I need this much money from them as a security deposit against damages on my property. And sometimes it was an exorbitant amount where to the point where they were intentionally 
giving them too high of a price because they just didn't want them there. And then they could say, oh, well, they, they couldn't cover the insurance. So it's not my fault that the Rolling Stones didn't play here. Yeah, that's. I think that in the business, that's called a soft no. <laughs> oh, I've gotten that one before too. There's uh, there's plenty of comedy clubs that have been like, "Hey, what would happen if I brought a show and click?" Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's an interesting uh, venue over here. The uh, the aforementioned Altamont Speedway is uh, going to get selected. Its owner uh, Dick Carter is all about it, man. He's pretty excited here. He goes, he understands the possibilities of what this is going to be. That Altamont Speedway is going to go down in history. He just didn't know it was going to be this way. So, uh, location for the concert has changed. This is a date that I thought was important. Uh, Altamont Speedway is decided uh, as the location on December 4th for a concert that was scheduled December the 6th. Two of the guys who were part of the planning party went out to inspect the premise of uh, the raceway and they got there and they're like, all right, there's nothing here. Everything is wrong. Uh, the pavement's cracked. There's broken glass everywhere. And one guy's going, no way, this will work. The other guy goes, this is perfect. We'll take it. <laughs> it's like that scene in Ghostbusters when uh, they, they finally buy the, uh, the, the Ghostbusters headquarters. Like, oh, it's a lot of plumbing. A lot of, there's no wiring in here. Everything's, you know, subcode. He goes, how much? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my other favorite part of this is that the way that they had inspected Woodstock was actually done by a helicopter ride going over and surveying the land. And you can get a good idea of that, but you really should walk the territory before you figure it out. So, um, question for either you, Andy, or you, Ming. Either of you guys ever play, uh, what was it, SimCity or the SimCity amusement park games when you, you know, in the years past? I remember that back in the day, yes. So, uh, uh, Andy, you ever play those? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys remember there was uh, there was always be a thing where you'd be setting up, so you're like, cool, I'm going to build this fantastic roller coaster and you're building the coolest roller coaster ever. And then all of a sudden you look out and all the people at the park are holding their crotches because you forgot to build bathrooms? Yes. Essentially, that's what happens at Altamont. <laughs> they had no meta, uh, They were severely undersupplied on uh, lavatories, which is uh, shitters, and uh, medical tents. And something tells me at any fest where you're going to be doing tons of hallucinogens, drinking, uh, you know, uppers, downers, everything else like that, you're going to have to shit, and eventually somebody is going to have to go to the medical tent. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been to some pretty sketchy concerts. I went to this thing in Randall's Island, New York called Amsterdam. And I love it already. Uh, it was like a combination thing where it was like Wyclef with 311, Snoop Dogg with the Chili Peppers. It was a, it was a good show. Problem was, uh, it was basically in a dusty field and it was about 100 degrees. And I, I could visualize how scary it could become because... People, you just see people passing out in the front and then getting like walked through the crowd like limp. It was quite spooky and things could have gone wrong, worse very quickly. I won't mention the venue um, just for legal liabilities, but I did uh, work um, post-military for a little while. I did work uh, the door at... Um, uh, a well-known theater venue that held a lot of rock concerts and stuff like that in New Jersey. And uh, the biggest problem that we ever had, we had heavy metal bands where we were like pulling knives out of people's boots at the door and stuff like, oh, shoot, I forgot I had my knife on me. Like honest mistakes. We had some rap concerts where guys were like, dude, listen, you know that there's a metal detector, right? And then you'd see a guy be like, okay. And then he'd come back a couple minutes later after he put it back in the car. 
So the biggest fights we ever had, though, was at the raves where kids are doing designer drugs and stuff like that. And by the way, a lot of designer drugs floating around here at Altamont. Those were the kids that would all of a sudden start dropping, maybe have a bad trip, stuff like that. There, there's a lot of there's some precedent uh, for what we're dealing with now that comes from what we're about to see over here at Altamont. And another last minute issue with what's going on with Altamont is actually going to be the stage itself. 39 inches tall. <laughs> 300,000 people and a 39-inch stage. Yeah, so pretty much uh, if you could, one fit mom at a CrossFit class could easily just jump that, you know, do one good vertical jump and be up on the stage it's with you. approximately the height of this table in front of us right now. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so, it's nuts because imagine being able to reach out and grab Keith Richards by the ankle. That's literally a, a fear that they have. And because the thing's so set up last minute, there's no chance to work with any sort of a superstructure here. So the issue starts to become it's low enough and last minute enough that there's a fear that these rowdy crowds that have been following the Stones around for the big part of their U.S. tour um, might be an issue. What happens if they get rowdy at Altamont where there's no uh, real security to kind of keep them safe? Well, they did put up a string. <laughs> Holy was at, they had a string across the front of the stage and that was the only barrier uh, that they were planning on having at one point. Yeah, so a string. That's what's going to stop people from getting involved over here. Um, now, what's the Ultima going to do uh, in order to ensure the safety of the venue? Dick Carter, owner of the venue, uh, he had a good move here. He goes, listen, I don't want cops showing up because these are the peace, hippie, and love count. They're going to start trying to put friggin' daisies at the end of the rifles and stuff like mm -hmm. that. They're going to maybe egg on the cops. So what he did is he hired plainclothes security officers. And these guys are going to be identifiable only to those in the know because they're going to wear a white button. So much like a uh, – uh, you know, wearing a, a pin, a safety pin, you know, to let people know on the train that you're a safe person to sit next to. Um, these white buttons – or so the security officers can identify themselves. Uh, now, what's interesting, though, most people feel that uh, Carter hired those guards more so to protect his property rather than the concert attendees at the concert. Listen, the people are on the other side saying, I just can't have my speedway getting destroyed, man. So the concert was free after all. And uh, the attendees on that day, did you get the number of how many people showed up, man? Did you know it? It's okay yeah. if you don't. 300,000. 300,000 people show up. All right. In total, um, I don't I, I dream of having 300,000 listens in cumulative over my three years of doing this fucking show. Still don't. OK, that's fair enough. But um, 300,000 people are going to descend upon Altamont, which is, a uh, again, a, a shoddy place that they're trying to set up overnight here. Not enough shitters, not enough medical tents, uh, undercover security, if you will. Someone's going to need to control the stage, Andy. Mm hmm. Uh, someone has to ensure the Rolling Stones, who are going to be helicoptered into the event because you don't want them driving in because obviously, like you said, the line is crazy trying to get into this mm -hmm. place and it's not hard to figure out. Do you guys think that the limo with the giant um, lips in the Rolling Stone logo, do you guys think that one of the stones might be in there <laughs> and then they're going to just get mobbed and descended upon? They had actually assembled the stage and then helicoptered the stage from the first location to Altamont. So there was, a, yeah, that was no another. No shit, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the Rolling Stones came in via helicopter, which will come back later. 
Oh yeah, no, we're uh, we're just setting up the mess right here, baby. It's uh, uh, listen, listeners at home, I want you guys to just uh, casually make a mental note of when you think a bad idea has taken place. So far, so good here. Uh, rushing the stage is going to be a real, uh, like a very legitimate possibility. And there was some other violence at other previous concerts. There was an incident at one of the Rolling Stones Miami concerts. And I think a couple of the New York concerts, there were some people getting a little bit rowdy. So, I mean, that was back when New York was rowdy, you know, back when we would we'd rough up people other than Rick Moranis. That Times um, Square of folklore. That's <laughs> Which, as a, a kid, probably sounded terrifying. But right now, I was like, man... Who needs a ticket to Vegas when you could just, yeah. you know, pretty much hop on the Port Authority bus? Yeah. Those taxi driver years. <laughs> well, uh, again, they have to figure out a way to handle the security. So a decision was made by the Rolling Stones manager. He goes, uh, I got a great idea. Let's bring in this outlaw motorcycle club known as Hell's Angels to do security for us. So, in defense, though, it wasn't the worst idea because, like I said, they had been part of some of the concert in the park stuff and it had gone okay. Yes. And uh, again, there was a lot of misconceptions, as there still are to this day, about the Hells Angels. They're a really fascinating group. Uh, I follow Chuck Zito on uh, Instagram, one of the wildest Instagram follows ever because you just never know what ridiculous celebrity he's going to be popping up with or what crazy opinion he's going to have. So Chuck Zito, I was a fan of his work on Oz, too. I thought mm -hmm. he was great on that show. But um Anyway, someone needs to ensure this, uh, that the Stones are going to be safe here. The Stones management decides to bring in Hell's Angels. And apparently he had to explain to them, the manager uh, for the tour at the time, had to explain to you know Mick and the boys afterwards. He goes, by the way, these are not – like there's a group similar to Hell's Angels in the UK that are just like kind of friendly guys that like riding motorcycles. These guys are legit one percenters. The Hell's Angels were actually at a Rolling Stones concert in Hyde Park in the UK – and just to give you an idea of the difference, they uh, had a tea party backstage. I believe it. That's <laughs> not even a joke. It's like documented. <laughs> so then you get you get to these uh, American Hell's Angels. It's a bit of a different story. Well, that, I do have a theory on that, and that's that um, the UK, you know, England, the British Empire, if you will. Uh, magnificent history that goes on. I mean, eventually they, they take over pretty much the entire world, which is fantastic for an island nation like that. But they do it slowly because of tea. America happens within two centuries because we drink coffee and we're essentially coked up all the time. Oh, makes sense. So that's my theory here. But The uh, other problem was that the San Francisco, the Bay Area Hells Angels, they did not have jurisdiction in, at Altamont where the concert took place. Uh -huh. So <clears throat> when it was assumed that this had worked out well in the past, it was a completely different group of dudes. It was actually a new chapter. So the rules, the hierarchy wasn't really set up. So there was a lot more anarchy involved due to that. A good, and I know you're not a sports guy, but I think this reference will land for most people, even just familiar with the pop culture aspect of football. So essentially, they think that they're going to get the San Francisco 49ers fan base to attend, right? Okay. And instead, they're winding up with the Oakland Raiders fan base, which typically makes Eagles fans look like pussies, okay? Raiders fans, it, we talk a little trash, you know, Phillies, uh, you know, Philly versus New York sports. There's a little garbage back and forth. Maybe you throw some batteries, maybe you get in a little bit of a fist fight. People straight up die if you mess with the Raiders and the Niners kind of a thing. It's it's bad. It's definitely a, a, a cataclysm. 
So Hell's Angels in uh, uh, the Oakland area are underneath the leadership of the legendary Sonny Barger. Okay. Sonny Barger, by the way, one of the most fa- – he's in Hunter S. Thompson's book. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had a cameo on Sons of Anarchy um, playing a, a guy named the, the Pimp or something like that. Um, they get hired by Sam Cutler. Cutler is the, the Stone 69 tour manager. And the idea is that they're going to guard the stage. Now, this becomes important because depending on who you talk to, there were different responsibilities of the Hells Angels. So conversations and memories will differ on the actual terms of the agreement. Uh, Security by Hells Angels, again, as Ming pointed out, clearly written on the concert poster, but the angels still maintain they never said they were there to be security for the entire event. Uh, Their job was to get the stone safely on stage. Uh, and they were then told that they could hang out on stage and drink beer as long as no members of the crowd could get past them. So you hang out on stage, anybody jumps up on the stage, and you go ahead and handle them. The only exchange of a good or service was $500 worth of beer. That's the greatest thing because then Cutler goes to him. He goes, he goes uh, now what do I need to, to provide you folks with in order for you guys to do this service for us? And the response was, we like beer. And uh, – they wound up agreeing to $500 worth of beer, which, by the way, adjusted for inflation. I went out and I actually got on the inflation calculator. Hell yeah. um, adjusted for inflation, $500 worth of beer in 1969 is now worth $3,500 worth of beer. So that, that's over three grand worth of beer. All right. It's a hell of a bar tab. It, uh, it sure is. Uh, so that's what these guys are essentially getting paid. And because you give them the $500 worth of beer, the motorcycle club will agree to sit on the stage and ensure that nobody messes with the generators or the performers. Okay. And uh, by the way, one of the, this is my favorite of the, uh, the, the outlaw motorcycle biker names. Uh, the guy was known as, uh, I won't give his last name out, even though it's public info, but his uh, biker name was Sweet William. Mm, there was a Pistol Pete too. Pistol Pete, Sweet William. Uh, I mean, the, the biker culture is fascinating. Now, the reason – this is actually worth mentioning too and I was going to get into it later but let's hit it right now. Okay. The reason why Hell's Angels felt like a safer option than the cops was at the time it was uh, don't trust anybody over 30. It was uh, you know kind of a, originally a fuck the police kind of a thing. Okay. There's a lot of these vibes. So they're going to bring in Hell's Angels, who Ken Casey or Kessie Kesey, I always screw his name Keezy. up. Kesey, thank you. Um, who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? He used to conduct outdoor acid tests, which would be essentially him having a giant party where it'd be like, "Hey guys, I've made a bunch of acid. Why don't you guys all come up?" Essentially, it's a Tupperware party, but everybody's getting fucked up. So, um, and he invited members of the Hell's Angels to come by, and Hell's Angels were then seen because when you're on acid, it's very difficult to be. Um, super violent on acid. It's um, well, it, it, I've seen enough episodes of cops where if they're on acid and doing some crazy, it's usually mixed with something else. Yeah. But because of that, now these hippie guys are just saying like, you know what, man, I, those guys, like they're big and scary guys, but really like they're kind of noble beasts, you know? They're just like hanging out. They're jamming out to the music with us. It's not that bad, man. Right. You guys seem pretty cool. And what they don't know is that they're sitting there and getting themselves involved with uh, a whole thing they don't know about. I'm going to say there's a slight difference, like you mentioned earlier, the San Fran guys versus the Oakland guys. Mm-hmm. It's essentially like um, um, I'm trying to think what the, uh, the the difference would be. Another deep sports reference? No, I'm not going to okay. go to sport. I'm trying to avoid that for you on this <laughs> one. But I will say this. Okay, the same way that uh, imagine you have San Fran, uh, but then you have Philly. The, oh, okay. the, the contrast of those cities. So you, I mean, I, I think maybe I, I think I have one. 
Hit me. It's like uh, stand-up comics hanging out as opposed to like improv people hanging out. Oh, yeah. So, it's a group full of theater majors versus uh, everyone has a diagnosed mental illness. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Nailed it. All right. (laughs) We landed that plane, baby. They parked their bikes across the front to be like a makeshift wall. Right, which sounds like a genius move. Sounds like, yeah. What could go wrong there? Oh, things are about to you, go you know, wrong. And you put your pride and joy in front of uh, three thousand or 300,000 people on different sorts of drugs who may or may not be angry, who are all very cold, by the way. It was about 39 degrees that night. I didn't even look into the weather. That's yeah. fucking worth noting. Yeah. And uh, so, some of the bikes got roughed up and that upset the Hells Angels, obviously. Well, they got... um. There's a lot going on here too, man, because it gets uh, it gets to be interesting. They were asked, uh, like I said, get the stones safely on stage. Then they can hang out on stage. And the, the Hell's Angels guys are allowed to drink beer as long as no members of the crowd can get past them. Supposedly, that's what the uh, exchange is worth in you know for the five hundred dollars worth of uh, the beer. Now the angels say they were clear about their willingness to take part. You pay us beer, nobody gets on stage. We're no police force. We don't do no shit like that. Exact quotes from some of the members. Okay. Now some of the local counterculture folks, like we said, had this higher opinion of them. Uh, that's about to change. They're going to realize that um, uh, maybe these uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs aren't exactly a part of your hippie counterculture movement. So. Most concert attendees are scared shitless of the motorcycle club, okay? One woman who later reported, she called into a radio station, I believe, when they were trying to do a deep dive, like almost like an original podcast, where mm. they were trying to, to do a documentary on the air about, well, what's going on? So, they're covering it half as news, you know, half as uh, uh, history, if you will. But this one woman reports seeing five different fist fights break out, all of them involving the Hells Angels, Okay. Uh, members were fighting the crowd. There was another incident she reported where she saw a girl getting dragged across the stage by her hair. And then there was another incident of a girl who was on a bad acid trip and she was being kicked and stepped on uh, and being walked over, if you will. So there's a fear of trampling here too. It's not um, – I I think some incidents have happened here, but I always remember that that one wild one of – when you can see uh, in the Pearl Jam documentary, you can see Eddie Vedder realize that someone's dying in the crowd during like a mosh pit. Yeah. I mean, I've – I've been in very weird situations at concerts. Like yeah, where people if are, I recall, you know, didn't you tell me the story? You were smoking a cigarette at a Great White concert once, and uh, and you just flicked it away. <laughs> that's such a deep red. No one's going to get that. <laughs> You'd be shocked how smart the listeners so? are. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't mean to interrupt you, man. I feel like you had something good here, so. I mean, I feel like people fight less these days, uh, just in my lifetime. So, there probably was a lot of fighting going on. It was more rough and tumble. You know, people weren't as litigious back then and, you know. Exactly. That was – and there's still fights to this day, but most of the time the fights now – and this is just what I saw working security and anything like that is it's knowing that security is going to intervene. So, how far are you – how much of a show can you put on before the security gets there? This is the opposite. Hmm. This is distinctly the opposite. Um, again, a girl's getting dragged across the stage by her hair. There's a bad acid trip going on. The angels, to the angels, and this is, again, they're very upfront about this. Like, this was our job. Our job is to drink beer and make sure nobody gets on stage. We're not here to provide for the welfare of the crowd. I believe the only thing they agreed to do was give directions if somebody was like, hey, uh, where do I go to do this? And then they could give directions. But the problem is, 
Um, this same woman who called into the radio station says that when she was trying to bring attention to the violence in the crowd and the inadequacies of the event, she was told, please be quiet by fellow concert goers out of fear that the Hells Angels, I understand there's a problem over here. And then they're just going to start beating the shit out of the people who are around because the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, or in this case, the squeaky wheel gets motorcycle chain whipped to the face. Yes, or a broken off pool cue. That's the thing. They are arming themselves yes. as, the, as the events unfold. Now, if you go back and listen to the audio, typically between songs, you hear, ah, you know, and applause. When you go back in, in between the songs at Altamont, you heard a lot of groaning and screams and uh, sounds of distress. My eye! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's... um. It's nuts. The whole thing's nuts. And by the way, uh, there is a documentary crew filming a certain documentary that's infamous now called Gimme Shelter. It's the Rolling Stones documentary. And the crew is there filming some of this stuff. Now, they don't have the much of the earlier footage on film, um, but they do have definitely the Stones performance, which is the most prolific by far in terms of the shit that's about to go wrong. But uh, the radio station host that is uh, doing this after math kind of a, a you know a, a recap if you will is hearing this woman talk about uh now this the idea that the crowd is being urged into silence that they're not acting on the things that are going on here this is something that psychologists have studied known as the bystander effect you ever hear about this oh yeah so bystander effect little side note here we're not getting super off topic but uh the bystander effect is something that was studied because of the infamous murder of uh, miss kitty genovese okay uh, for those who don't know, have you ever heard of that one, Ming, by chance or no? Uh, I have not. Okay. No. Kitty Genevieve, not to catch you off guard, man, I didn't realize you were you're probably trying to run the uh, the rest of your business or one of your many businesses. And here I am asking you bullshit from Wikipedia, I read. <laughs> but um, Kitty Genevieve's interesting uh, case here, tragic case, really. She was a 28-year-old woman who was stabbed to death in public in front of her apartment in Kew Gardens, Queens. Okay, and the story becomes a national sensation due to a the murder of a young woman, uh, and more importantly, the supposed inaction of thirty-eight witnesses that made no attempt to intervene or call the authorities. So, whether they were just assuming, well, someone else is going to handle that, uh, I don't want to get involved with it personally, or shit, maybe I'm next. Ah, I mean, we've all stepped over our share of homeless people, right? I've been there before. I had a, a guy come up to me in Jacksonville, Florida, down at the beach one time and goes, hey, man, I need a ride to Children's uh, uh, Wolfson's Children's Hospital or whatever. And I was like, oh, OK, cool, man. So get an Uber and then go. You're about maybe 20 minutes away. He goes, he goes, no, man, I really need a ride from you. And I was like, oh, that ain't happening, dude. <laughs> and I always think, did I do the right thing by protecting me and the girl I was with at the time? Or did I just keep that guy from seeing a, some kid who was tragically wounded or something i don't know maybe you could have met your new best friend could have been that man it's a true story that's actually how me and high roller met um but (laughs) anyway uh the the kitty genovese thing is a wild story they wind up catching the guy two weeks later the guy who murdered her um and he admits to it because they caught him on another charge or something like that uh but the again the sensationalism of the story was the idea that 38 people decided not to help so it's almost like when you use the hashtag um hashtag activism Hmm. you know what i mean so you want to i'd rather do that than get involved directly kind of a thing so that kind of a vibe is going on here this bystander effect where people are being paralyzed by fear into an action so but that's not the case for everybody there are things that are starting to happen here. you can't it's a cold day all right now that we know that uh it's overcrowded i am a very calm person 
But if I have to pee and I'm stuck in traffic on the parkway, I have been known to go full Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. I, I, there was a little urgency just when we met up today, you know? Yes. When we found out the elevator was out and I had a nice uh, Dunkin' Donuts cold brew uh, dump I had to take, which, by the way, I stopped on the third floor to handle. Um, so that's their problem now. All right, buddy. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, uh, this is what's important here. This uh, fear seems to be putting this crowd of, keep in mind, stoned. And mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to make a differentiation between stoned and tripping, okay? Okay. Because uh, I don't enjoy being stoned. I've enjoyed most of the times I've done hallucinogens, right? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, uh, you and I know a little bit about being drunk, buddy. Okay. Possible. <laughs> um, so you got uh, stoned, tripping, drunk hippies into this catatonic fear of these hell's angels that are looming down on them from the stage, almost like gargoyles over a, a gothic castle. See, I think the speed is the underrated thing here. Becomes the uh, speed is the biggest part of it. First of all, every great episode of Cops winds up with speed. And as the great Nate Condit once told me, he goes, what is it about meth that just makes you need to get naked? <laughs> <laughs> but these were, this was, they were taking a lot of what they would call reds back in the day. That's uh, it, it, that it's an amphetamine, right? yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, and uh, that's where the Grateful Dead said uh, on Reds, vitamin C, and cocaine. You oh, know, oh Jesus, that's an, so. Now we're unpacking more lyrics because that comes in later too about right. other other artists that wind up making references. So the Reds, that's probably really close to the shit that they were giving to kamikaze pilots in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitler, Hitler, yeah, just yep. take it. Yeah, you me t- in uh, middle school. <laughs> No, these reds are too crazy, man. Everyone, cut them in half, call it Adderall. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to the kids. Yeah. Enjoy your Ritalin. Focus on reading. Yeah, he's a behavior problem. Dump speed on it. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is how the event's going to go down. We're now set up here. So the intimidating Hells Angels are chilling on the stage, drinking beer. Uh, the event is cold. It's overcrowded. You can't really take a shit. People are in fear. There's some violence going on left and right here. Now, this is what a great guy Santana is. Everybody fucking loves Santana. Mm. All right. He goes up, plays his usual killer set, little to no incident. But the bikers are getting drunker. The crowd's starting to get a little bit more ornery. Uh, Fights are continuing to break out amongst the crowd. Uh, The crowd is fighting, right? Then there's Hell's Angels fighting the crowd. And then even some of the performers are going to start to get roughed up here as we're going to cover. The mood is growing more and more tense. So Jefferson Airplane. Right. Don't you want somebody to love amongst other songs? Uh, you know, that the great uh, Alice in Wonderland reference uh, mm, uh, that they White make. Rabbit, right? Oh, dude, what a song that is. Um, who are also architects of the festival. Remember, it's two members of Jefferson Airplane that have this whole great idea. Let's get the stones out here, man. It'll be a great time. They take the stage next. During their set, members of the crowd, possibly accidentally, knock over what you were referring to earlier, the uh, wall of motorcycles mm. that were being yeah, parked in front of the stage. Yeah, they knock over one of the dude's motorcycles. Yeah, and it does not go over well, okay? It could have been completely on accident. They don't know. They don't know the intent here. Um, but once you knock over a Hells Angels motorcycle, exact quote from the Hells Angels president uh, of the chapter too, by the way, is, uh, was, I mean, once we do something, we do it till it's done. Right. right. That, that was the point here. That's that, pretty good Chuck Zito sound. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I love Chuck Zito. Chucky I can't Pancone, help. right? Yeah, Ch- uh, Chucky Pancamo, the good old boy Pancamo. of Oz. Pancamo, okay. <laughs> but it's great. Uh, the uh, bikers retaliate against the people who knocked over um, the bike by throwing fists at literally anybody that was in the vicinity, 
which includes Marty Balin, Balin, I forget how he pronounces his last name, a member of Jefferson Airplane, who literally, it, it's such a funny moment where he goes, well, I'm the star, I'm a musician, so I'm going to use my power to then stop us, let me intervene. So he jumps off the stage and tries to get between the Hells Angels and the crowd that's, uh, you know, that, that literally tries to jump into a fisticuffs, puts his hand on the guy's shoulders. He stops playing, the rest of the band's still playing. He jumps off the stage and tries to calm everybody down, thinking they're going to turn over and be like, oh, wow, this is a member of Jefferson Airplane. Let's listen to what he has to say. Nope. Hell's Angels punches him in the face, knocks him the fuck out. Should have called that band Jefferson Ambulance. (laughs) Better than Starship, right? (laughs) Well, they knock this dude out. So now a member of the band that's performing on stage is unconscious on the ground. And uh, I believe the lead singer, one of the lead singers, then sarcastically goes, hey, thanks to the bikers for taking care of Marty out there for us. <laughs> In which case now Hell's Angels jumps up onto the stage, grabs the microphone and then starts arguing back and forth. So it's like uh, it's pretty much uh, Kanye interrupting Taylor Swift on steroids here at this point. So tensions are continuing to grow here. Um you thought that they were going to de-escalate the situation, but they wind up knocking the guy out, like I said, uh, and this temporarily stops the show. So, surely things are going to calm down, right, Andy? Well, some of the bands backstage are starting to get a bit worried, mm-hmm. and then there's one major band that eventually chooses to just evacuate the scene. <laughs> well, before, um, before that band decides to pack it in, and it's the perfect band to say, whoa, this is too much, man. Um are, uh, are, this is the ironic twist of the night. The only time the crowd really calms down and the bikers seem to calm down is when they're all brought together by the, the melodious tones of the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> okay. The Burrito Brothers come out there and their set seems to restore some order. And the crowd and the bikers alike are like, all right, these guys can jam. These guys are pretty cool, man. Uh, no major incidents take place during their set. Now, there will be more fights more rampant drug use and more very, very continually more drunk Hell's Angels are coming, though. And during the, by the way, to me, the calmest set, uh, I shouldn't say the calmest set, the calmest uh, genre of music, if you will, um, even though the, the lyrics are incendiary, but uh, the, the rhythms are always pretty calm. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yes. Right. So four dead in Ohio. They're willing to they'll, they'll conjure you up with some lyrics, but you got to do some thinking here. And when you're on a lot of drugs, it's you're really going by the rhythm. So this isn't Metallica coming out and playing Kill Em All. This is, you know, uh, uh, if you can't be with the love, the one you're with pretty much is probably playing. And somehow violence is breaking out during this guy's set. Uh, Stephen Stills, who's possibly the least egregious member of the entire group uh, during his set, gets stabbed in the leg several times by a uh, sharpened uh, bicycle spoke by a crazed, drugged out member of Hell's Angels. So this is a guy who probably took some of those reds you talked about. Hell yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's been drinking free beer all day, right? And he actually freaks out and you then starts- stabbing at a certain point. Exactly. You know? <laughs> he winds up stabbing Stephen Stills in the leg here a bunch of times. Now, it's not like a bloody, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's no one, There's no great way to get stabbed. But it's not like it's uh, I'm trying to kill you. It was definitely like um, this guy's just a maniac right now. Yeah. So Stephen Stills is getting stabbed over here. Uh, and then Hell's Angels is trying to uh, calm the situation down, which is where once the the motorcycle got knocked off, like you said, Andy, what's coming out? What are they going to start busting out? They got those broken off pool, pool cues. Yep. Broken off pool cues, just like De Niro and Mean Street. Start playing eight ball with some hippies. <laughs> they have uh, sawed off. Actually, I love this. They called them sawed off pool cues. Um, and then they uh, 
They got that and then they have their motorcycle chain. So these guys are now armed. The barbarians are armed, okay? And they're almost controlling the populace. And the stage is getting crowded. There's 300,000 people in attendance, but as any music festival knows, it's not everybody gets to be you know, front center of the stage. There's probably, I think, between two to 4,000 people that are crowding the stage uh, towards the height of the event. But we're about to get into, um, this is the best part here. After hearing about a member of Jefferson Airplane being knocked out cold during his set and the non-fatal stabbing of Stephen Stills, a band decides they're going to keep on trucking, Andy. They trucked right out of there. Which, which band decides to bail? Oh, the Grateful Dead. They left town. They did not play. That's how bad this hippie jam went. The Grateful Dead, who's really a hometown band in the Bay Area. Yeah. Right? Uh, they thought it was a little bit too wild. So that's right. Jerry Garcia, the man who once accidentally ate a cake with 800 hits of acid in it, said, hey, man, this seems like a little too much for us. <laughs> they they so, left town, which left a gap in the lineup, which uh, created more chaos eventually. Oh, yeah. That's all you want is no distraction, right? What, what could be better than not having a distraction right, right. now? Um, so the Rolling Stones, the marquee item, you're not going to leave ahead of time. This isn't like, um, what was that uh, comedy concert that they did? Um, uh Oh, with the Bill Burr speech? Well, uh, I mean, that one's great. That's the, the Philly incident. That, that's yeah. Opie and Anthony. Um, the one I was thinking of, it's uh, it was like a- Oh, like two years ago. Yeah, Laugh Fest where they had, uh, it would be amazing. And it all got canceled. Well, because it was amazing because you'd have, if you were a true comedy fan, you wanted to see Michael Che, Jim Norton, um, you know, uh, Todd Barry showed up. Burt Kreischer was on a few of them. Uh, yeah, he probably was, man. But the big marquee ones was uh, Aziz Ansari and Amy Schumer. And literally, you watched the comedy fans just all leave as soon as uh, like the the good comics were done. Because you're like, Schumer doesn't have shit right now. She's like, yeah. I get fucked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Aziz and Starry stole, stole a bunch of my jokes too. So I'm just putting that out there now. I believe it. Yeah, I do actually. It's uh, he was trying to go by Aziz High Roller too yeah. for a minute, which really upset me. But uh, in order to not face litigation, I do want to remind you guys this is a comedy show. Uh, after the dead decide not to play, that leaves just the main event. People are not leaving until they get to see the Rolling Stones. That's the whole reason they showed up in the first place. Plus, it's a free concert. so. And they made the crowd wait around for an hour. Until mm -hmm, sundown. Now, yes, till sundown. Mm -hmm. There's a supposed quote from Mick Jagger about why oh they uh, didn't come out until sundown. Do you, do you know anything about this? I don't, but some of the quotes from the Stones this about this is great. Because the stars come out at night, baby. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, me and Bowie were pushing our penises up against each other. <laughs> and I just didn't want to go on just yet. Yep. But, um, after the dead decide not to play, the main event, the Rolling Stones, decide they're going to show up. Literally, they're going to show up. Uh, the, now, this is the other part of the, the job for uh, Hell's Angels, is to make sure that when the helicopter lands, that nobody gets to mess with the Stones, that the Hell's Angels is going to flank them pretty much, get them safely to the stage, and then guard them to make sure there's not going to be an issue. Um, so upon the helicopter landing, what do you think happens in the first couple of seconds? Somebody punches Mick Jagger in the head. Yep. The uh, the crowd surrounding them is getting a little bit wild here, and it, it actually scares Mick Jagger shitless. Like he knows he's in trouble now. Uh, Hell's Angels clear the way to the stage where now thousands of attendees are beginning to encroach on this stage. So again, remember, as uh, High Roller mentioned earlier, it's about a 39 inch high stage. Not very difficult to jump on it. It's, you know, it's literally if you're uh, uh, it's one little jump. Uh, and I remember being at a concert at uh, PNC Bank Arts Center 
with my cousins. We went and saw Smashing Pumpkins and it was a very angry Billy Corgan finally said, hey, uh, I'm glad you guys are here, but next motherfucker that jumps up on the stage is getting a guitar to the face. Oh, my God. So, um, but it was important, man, that uh, we, we break down this because this is what's going to happen here. Uh, fights break out, tensions resume, and the band fears that if they don't play, this is exact quotes from the Stones around the time. He goes, we were scared, but if we didn't play, we were afraid full-scale riot and we weren't sure. They were going to probably get the same. Their helicopter ride out of Altamont would be similar to the final chopper out of Saigon where it's just people trying to get the fuck out. So there's a lot of mythology and a lot of half, half quotes regarding what the Rolling Stones were thinking leading up to this. Um, a lot of it's PR too, because they they realize how shitty they looked in some aspects. But I'm I'm excited. Keep going. Well, they, I mean, aside from the stars come out at night thing, um, they had the film crew for the documentary there, mm-hmm. and they later said the Stones later said like, no, we we waited an hour because this guy was late. They tried to pin it off on other people. The reality of the situation was that the film crew had all their lights and stuff uh, set up to shoot at night. So regardless of whatever else was going on in that day, they were like, "Yeah, it's not the film's not going to come out that good if we try to shoot with, you know." So there was um multiple manipulations of the storyline after the fact, but that seems to be the truest through line through everybody's story. Well, Jagger has refused to comment on it, but supposedly the bad blood between him and the Hells Angels stemming from this event uh is so bad that in 2008, members of Hell's Angels tried to go to his house in Long Island and kill him. Mick Jagger lives in Long Island? He has a house in Long Island. Okay, it that okay. way. So, Jagger's on stage begging the fans. He goes, please, just be cool down there, okay? And they begin to play their set. Into the third song, which is Sympathy for the Devil, one of my all-time favorite tracks by them. During this song, a uh, a rather uh, rather violent fight begins to break out in plain view of the band and that forces them to stop playing until things calm down they plead again with the crowd please be cool man be cool and they begin playing under my thumb now as my good friend max antonucci pointed out a lot of people think that this violent incident we're about to talk about which is the marquee violent incident of the whole event they think that uh it took place during sympathy for the devil it's not it's during under my thumb which is hilarious because that's a a much calmer song of Mm. uh, the rolling that's one that like Parents sing to their babies at night, kind of a yeah. thing. So I can see me getting in a fight to paint it black. Oh, totally. You know, that would be a good one. Well, my dream scenario for a movie, if I ever get a chance to make one, is I do want a violent fight scene to Funky Town. Okay. That's <laughs> but Under My Thumb is playing. And at the start of Under My Thumb, an 18 year old black kid named Meredith Hunter, who, when I heard about the, you know, the, the Meredith Hunter incident, I was like, oh no, what happened to a poor woman? Nope, just a, a black dude from the Bay Area named Meredith Hunter, who, I shit you not, I had to watch the footage myself to confirm this. The green pimp suit. Is wearing a lime green pimp suit. Yep. Okay, so he's going to stand out in the crowd a little bit. Uh, he attempts to get on stage. A hell's angel then grabs him by the head, punches him in the face, and shoves him off the stage. Documentary footage from Give Me Shelter is not aware. They really did not know that they captured this until they were reviewing the footage. Shows the incident in real time. Hunter's girlfriend uh, then tries to restrain him. 
and calm him down. Uh, she's got tears in her eyes at this point. Suppose they even show her crying later on at the uh, the fallout of the incident. But with a menacing look in his eye, Hunter walks back toward the stage. The Stones manager could see the man because he was up on one of the trucks looking down on the stage. Uh, he was heading towards Mick Jagger. And uh, the Stones manager says, without a doubt, this man had rage in his eyes and somebody was going to get hurt. Hunter would later be found to have been high on meth. He's, yeah. he's on those reds you're talking about, yeah. buddy. Uh, during the incident. So now you got a pissed off guy on meth heading towards the stage. He had been in and out of multiple like juvenile facilities. And at this point, uh, everybody thought he was doing rather good and he was off of substances and whatnot. Oh boy. So it, it was unknown to everybody that he was like back on drugs. Jesus. Yeah. And his girlfriend apparently did not know that he had a gun. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the exciting part of this one over here. Because uh, depending on how you read about this, they some publications just leave out the part where he brandishes a firearm here. As Meredith Hunter is now attempting to get back on stage, he pulls out a long-barreled. It's important that it's a long-barreled because that's like kind of just hilarious to me. Um, and uh, it's a twenty-two caliber, which, by the way, is uh, that that's like that's the gun you teach kids how to shoot on, but it's also the caliber used by um, for most assassinations. Because uh, for a mafia says you can get up close with somebody, and mm. you can, but if I shot from this distance, if I shot Ming in the arm with a twenty-two, he'd be like, "What the fuck, dude!" And then he would, you know, pretty much like we would just bandage it up right here, and he'd have the next show come in, like it wouldn't okay. be a big deal. But yeah, he literally brought a gun to a knife fight. Uh, <laughs> anytime we can quote the great Sean Connery uh, on this show, I'm pretty excited about it. Don't laugh. We're talking about a man's death. Well, it gets kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so he pulls out a long barrel 22 caliber revolver uh, out of his jacket. Upon seeing this, uh, Hell's Angel, Alan Passaro, pulls his knife, parries the revolver away so that it's not pointed towards anybody, and then stabs Hunter twice. Meredith Hunter would die from the stabbing, and Passaro ironically gets acquitted of the murder charges after the jury views footage from the Rolling Stones documentary, Gimme Shelter. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff here, too. The uh, Hell's Angels hired uh, a, like, the first black lawyer, first black basketball player for some school in San Francisco, and one of the first black fighter pilots ever as the lawyer for Pissarro at this point. Whoa, Tuskegee. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. No, I think it was, wouldn't Tuskegee have been way earlier than, this, like, 1970? No, uh, well, Tuskegee would have been World War Two. So uh, keep going. Don't anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they, um, and then this lawyer it was a brilliant play by the Hell's Angels because the trial only lasted three weeks and he was acquitted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and when you look at the footage too, Passaro is. It, it's almost. I don't want to call it heroic because it's. Uh, I don't want to put a, a spin on this in, a, in any sort of a, too much of a positive light. But the idea that he parries away the uh, revolver then goes in for the quick stab here. Now, this is important too. This is the part of it, that Gimme Shelter documentary footage. You can actually see Mick Jagger watching it when, when the, the producer's showing it to him. And Mick Jagger's like, now where's the gun here? And they actually show it. You can see the silhouette of the gun is uh, shown against his girlfriend's like white shawl that she's wearing or something. Mm -hmm. That You're then able to see the, the, the gun here. So, it was in plain view of everybody. It's called a dashiki, I believe. <laughs> well, uh, his girlfriend was, uh, I forget what her name was. She was like Patty Dufresne or something like that. She was uh, some uh, like very uh, plain looking uh, blonde girl or something. But uh, 
Anyway, what was worth mentioning, too, is that uh, it's unclear. They always say it's unclear if Jagger knew about the stabbing, but he was made aware that Hunter had a gun on him because there's a, a from the footage, he goes, he goes, hey, man, we're, we're going to get out of here. If you guys don't start roughing up that guy, like, he was trying to be an advocate for like, hey, here's a black member of my crowd who's getting roughed up by a couple of white guys. And then the Hells Angels grab the microphone away from him and go, uh, he goes, no, the guy's got a fucking gun, dude. And then uh, Mick Jack's like, oh, okay, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, a little bit of the folklore about what Mick Jagger could or could not see. So in some of the photos that Ming had up earlier, you'll see there was these two giant um, like uh, things uh, set up for the lights that were supposed to be the spotlight uh, mm -hmm. infrastructure. Uh, they were not able to fly the spotlights in on time, so, the so they – took all of those lights that they had and backlit the stage. Good so move. the first 150 feet of the crowd was clearly highly visible. I think they had um, something like 50,000 watts of lights behind the band. Jesus. Well, it's uh, again, too, that the thing is that Jagger says he doesn't quite know what was going on here, but the band does kind of stop playing for a second. You can watch this footage. It's on YouTube. It's very uncomfortable. Right. Um, uh, also, one of them that I saw was like clearly by a Hell's Angels guy. He usually was like, Hell's Angels saves Mick Jagger's life. And then you watch the other one where it's like tragic murder at Altamont. So, again, it's like the news. You got to figure out where you want to get it from. Mm -hmm. um, I'll wait for Tim Pool to do something about it and I'll go from there. <laughs> but uh, again, he was definitely made aware that the guy had a gun. The band would then finish their set supposedly out of fear that more chaos, uh, that the infamous Altamont uh, was going to turn into a full scale riot. So, Altamont then becomes viewed as the end of the idealism of counterculture. So this concert that takes place just four months after Woodstock was a total shit show. The death of Meredith Hunter, by the way, not the only fatality at the event. Uh, two more people were killed in a hit and run auto accidents. So two people die in a hit and run. Mm -hmm. uh, and then witnesses claim the driver to have been a young Ted Kennedy. Oh, that's awesome. Never heard about that. No, it's because I've made that shit up. <laughs> oh, that's good. Damn it. Uh, another guy died by uh, being on acid and deciding he would just take a, a swim in a beautiful pool that turned out to be like a two-inch deep puddle and broke his neck and drowned. Gee, yeah. I th it was an irrigation canal or something like that, uh, right? Well, you know. So, yeah, it's, there's a reason why, you know, you don't have to... You have to dive into every body of water. Maybe you can wade into the water a little bit. Yeah. You know, now, figure it out. Here's another thing. Uh-oh. Four people died that day. Four people were born that day. So, it's a net <laughs> even. So, no, here's, here's, here's how crazy the late 60s were. You're uh, like eight months, 29 days, and like 72 hours pregnant. You're like... Yeah, I really want to see the Rolling Stones, though. <laughs> There's a, uh, a, a there was a female singer of a local band, and I can't remember the name of the band because they weren't like super. They were like local famous, who was there, and uh, she gets hit in the head with a beer can, and she's like six or seven months pregnant and suffers a skull fracture, and the Stones pay out of pocket for all of her legal and medical expenses and everything else like that, blah blah blah, because they're like, we can't be roughing up. Um, pregnant lead singers of prominent Bay Area bands during this. We can't have that on our con. So that was another incident that took place. But um, again, this concert takes place just four months after Woodstock. Total shit show here. Uh, 
again, the, the, there's people that have died at this event. Uh, to me, if Woodstock was your first time being in love, Altamont was your first night sleeping on your buddy Billy's couch because you bought a house for a girl in Jacksonville and it didn't work out. <laughs> okay? Just yeah, in theory. that at Woodstock, too. Right. And that's something that that's an angle on this that I thought was kind of important. I think they kind of used this as a, I think they kind of used Altamont as kind of any uh, a good way to besmirch the counterculture altogether. Kind oh, of totally. like uh, wrap it up and be like, see, this is what happened when youths get together. They just, you know, like, I mean, all things considered, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And it was basically just like the fights that's going to happen. The murder or the, you know, the killing. I mean, it was just too, you know, really bad place, bad time. You know, it wasn't necessarily indicative of everything that was going on culturally at the time, but it was painted to be that way. Oh, it, it, anybody who was critical of the movement at the time definitely had it all figured out here that this is how we're going to frame it. Um, the concert is criticized by uh, many as the death of the dream that the new generation was going to break from old traditions and create a true egalitarian society. It ruined the uh, hopes of a generation that they thought they could provide meaningful change. It truly was for them paradise lost in a lot of ways. Um, Altamont would inspire several other songs by the Stones. Um, the, the Stones get criticized for the Gimme Shelter video because they get played as sympathetic when really they, you know, in a lot of ways, egged on the situation or took advantage of it. And like you said, manipulated certain things and angles. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention here too, other bands like the Blue Oyster Cult make little mentions of this incident in some of their songs. There's the line in The Cable Guy where they reference uh, Altamont as well. And then of course, the uh, this one was highly contested for a while because the guy himself would not, uh, and we are wrapping up Ming, I promise. Um, this guy, uh, uh, Don McLean, right? The guy who wrote the immortal song, American Pie. Mm. There's certain lines in there that are clear. He would never mention this until he sold the rights to the song. And then he came out and admitted it. That lines like, uh, uh, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, uh, Jack flash, you know, candlestick. That's, you know, candlestick park. That's making references out to the Bay Area, stuff like that. Um, there's a line in there about no angel born in hell, hell's angels. Um, there's a could break that Satan spell watching from the stage and rage kind of a thing. There's a whole bunch of lines in there where Don McLean is using that is that this is the end. That's the end. The thing that started with Buddy Holly's plane going down and the, the music is starting to die here. This is the last gasp. This was wounded knee for the, the counterculture hippie movement, man. Um, McLean knew what he was doing. He used the Stones concert that day to show that how this is how music lost its way. All right. Things had become uh, less idyllic now and the fresh apple of the 60s youth. They took a big bite out of that and saw a giant ugly worm called reality, motherfuckers. All right. Now, I got a lot of stuff that I think is cool about the hippie movement, man. I really do. But I also sit there and I was like, well, let's find a way to blend these two things. Maybe a middle ground is the right move. Maybe some cops and some hell's angels. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, the Stones, again, heavily criticized for the concert. Most musicians and attendees speak about the horrors of the event with true remorse. This is a fantastic quote, though. Everyone's talking about it. Jagger won't even publicly comment on it anymore, but he clearly you know, showed a lot of remorse for the incident. It's remembered as the day that killed the, the hippie movement. Uh, a quote from Keith Richards, though. Uh, Keith Richards, when asked about Altamont, he goes, uh, all in all, not a bad concert. <laughs> So, did you have anything you wanted to say about uh, the aftermath of this? No, there was a lot of finger pointing. Um, you know, he, and the behavior of the Stones seems like 
real poor, but only because somebody got killed. Like, if somebody had not gotten killed, there was like, oh, there were some fights and stuff. You know, no one cares. It's only because there was, like, that fatal implication that their behavior... I mean, they're rock stars. So, they're going to act like rock stars. And it's only because of that, you know, tragic circumstance that they really came under scrutiny. I, I, I walked away from it being like, ah, I would do the same thing on a Tuesday and, you know, at a show. I'm not going on to the... That's my new thing, by the way. The stars come out at night. That's a- <laughs> so. Yeah, which sucks because now because of COVID, we have to do um, uh, daytime comedy shows. Comedy shouldn't be done when the sun's still up. That's just kind of my observation on that one. Agreed. But uh, I, I will say this. We are going to wrap up here. I want to say thank you to the uh, the, the, the God himself, all right, uh, the merciless Ming Chen for being behind the ones and twos for us today here. Uh, when Kahuna wakes up in about two and a half hours, um, we'll let him know that he missed out on a good episode. But uh, thank you very much over to uh, everybody at a Shared Universe podcast studio making this thing happen. Thank you to my guest, Andy Highroller. Highroller, where can people find you? You've got some cool projects coming up. Right. Oh, yeah. You and me taking, about to record something cool later, I'm too. taking over the internet, taking over the Instagram, Facebook, taking over Andy underscore high roller on Instagram, though. That's a good starting spot. And I will tag him in all this, too. And you know that Andy's one of my favorite guests to have on here. Also, one of my favorite comics in the entire Jersey Shore area. Uh, as long as we I bet you say that's all the girls. Yeah, it's uh, well, I mean, there's only there's a, maybe a handful of comics in the Jersey Shore area. But uh, no, it's uh, it's great to have you in here, man. We got you in early too. Uh, we're going to work on a couple other projects here. You did something hilarious. You put out the uh, uh, GG Allen or Carl Panzram game. That's you can view that full video on our Instagram TV. I also posted it over on my personal Facebook. If you want to support the show, guys, uh, jump on over to our Patreon. We do have merch out. It's being mailed out to you guys soon. We had the founding losers. We filled our uh, original uh, dream of having uh, one loser for every signer of the Declaration of Independence. 69. It's a... <laughs> We fulfilled that, man. So we do have some merch coming out your guys' way. Uh, I'm excited about that. We're going to be moving forward here. If you want to do support the show, though, if you join the Patreon for just $5 a month, you get an extra bonus episode. We will be doing uh, the second installment of The War of 1812 that will come out here soon. That will not count as the December episode, okay? That's going to still count as part of the November episode uh, for the Patreon listeners. So we will put out some additional content for you. Like I said, I just had a little bit of a health scare I was dealing with recently. Uh, The holidays came around, which screwed everything up. And now my old man's getting, uh, I guess, some teeth pulled and some part of his jaw shaved off or something like that. I don't know. But the guy's going to be on painkillers for the next couple of days. And I literally just had to explain to him that he's not allowed to operate heavy machinery for the next couple of days. He's already pissed about it you're kp and he's all pk'd that's a <laughs> but that's the uh the gambit on that one man so uh feel free to follow us over at american loser podcast on instagram american loser uh, official page on facebook uh at kp burke sucks is my page over on instagram and kp burke over there uh on the old facebook i would plug some upcoming tour dates i really have none except december 18th and 19th over at dingbats in clifton i will be hosting the show for good old don jameson and jim florentine we're going to do something to uh end the holidays on a high note here and i'll go ahead and make my announcement now typically uh in the winter months uh my parents go down to uh, a place they inherited in south florida uh pompano beach where we call uh, my dad south beach larry for a couple of months and because there are absolutely no comedy shows going on up here and i have nothing else to keep me i'm actually going to be taking my ass down to jacksonville florida for the months of january and february loser will still be coming out on a regular schedule ming's already working with me on some stuff there we're going to figure out ways to keep the content coming out for you guys but it's important to me to say thank you so much to the listeners of the show you guys mean a lot to us i had a good time on this one 
Thank you so much to Andy High Roller, one of the best guests we have on the show here, and Ming Chen, who is fantastic. Uh, it, it's you're like the Kahuna, except uh, if I didn't have to re-explain what I just said every thirty seconds. <laughs> the most handsome boy with ADD I've ever met. But guys, that being said, uh, my name was KP Burke, and that was the ultimate free concert, American Loser. An American Loser, the day I was born. An American Loser, the day I was born. An American Loser, the day I was born.